being that yesterday, day before, was the time of uh, receiving the Torah, Shuras. Let's try and look at the very fundamental subject of the foundations of Torah, the so-called fundamentals of faith, or 13 articles, if you like, the basis of the Jewish creed or Torah. And maybe we'll be able to spend a few weeks um, looking at these... um, looking at these 13 things which are fundamentals of the Jewish religion, Judaism, Torah, and they constitute the pillars of an existence which leads from this world to the next world. I would like to make it a series. If you miss one of them, then you have no share in the world to come. Don't worry, it's not my power to dispense. Um, the 13 Articles of Faith, that's a fascinating issue. Let's see if we can, see if we can try to, to understand this. You know that, um, first of all, let's lay down the background carefully. The Maimonides, the Rambam, in his famous commentary to the Mishnah, in the chapter in Sanhedrin, which deals with, in fact the existence in this world and the next, in fact, specifically the existence in the next world, and what are the conditions under which a person could lose, as it were, could lose their share in the world to come. The Raman discusses, brings, lists 13 categories of things that are so-called ikrim, and ikr in Hebrew means a root or a fundamental, and they are known, they've come to be known as the 13 articles, I don't know how they translate to the English city really, but... 13 roots or fundamentals or foundations or 13 articles of creed or faith, whatever you want to, whatever you want to translate. The, um, they've come to be formulated. He goes into detail there, and for convenience sake and for, I think, the, the, um, the meaning for this introductory phase will, will come across more, more plainly if we, if we use the text that is almost certainly not the Rambam's text, but was written by probably one of his contemporaries or someone who, who lived shortly after him, who rephrased his, uh, rephrased his 13 principles in a way that becomes actually a statement of faith. In other words, what the Rambam does there is he, he describes what these 13 articles are and he explains them. In this famous uh, formulation, which you find printed in virtually every sitter, and many people have, make a point of saying it every day after Shakris every morning, they are rephrased not as philosophical articles, but as statements of belief. Ani ma'amin be'emona I believe with a perfect faith, etc. One after another, they all begin like that. All to the 13th, starting with the first one, which is, I believe with a perfect faith. Shabari is brought away that Hashem was made blessed. Uberi malik is the God. He is the creator, creates, obtains, and conducts all that is in creation. He did, does, and will do all that he's ever done. All the way to the 13th, which is, I believe, with a perfect faith, that the dead will be revived, there will be a resurrection of the dead. When it pleases Hashem, when it comes, becomes his desire that it should be there. Okay, that's what. They are third, between that and the 13th are all of these articles. And they've been very succinctly phrased as these particular, um, I believe, or, or articles of faith. So what I'd like to do is look at these 13, because obviously you want to approach Torah on a fundamental basis. We, we set ourselves the goal in, the, in these Wednesday night you know, meetings to, to look at things that are basic to, to Jewish understanding and to Torah. And then from there we can obviously, all of us can go home and do the work of, of you know, retreating back into text and taking it further into some ramifications. Obviously, the place to start is with the fundamentals, and one keeps coming back to those. You never, obviously, never outgrow those. Everything else is just a deeper insight into these fundamentals. Thanks. Um, so, let's try, let's take a look at, at, at these and see if we can, see if we can plumb them, you know, um, in, in, in some depth. Without reading you each of them, I'll, I'll try to briefly state what the 13 are. We're very much encouraged for the rest of this series, as long as we're able to read on the subject, to, to do any harm to bring a text. 
and it will be almost indispensable for you to try and do a little research. If you're interested in taking the subject seriously, before you come next time, get yourself a sitter. If your Hebrew is not that good, get one with translation. Art scroll, for example, and translation and commentary. And you can look up the 13 and um, try to become knowledgeable at, at whatever level you can. The more effort you put into it, the more you will the more you will benefit. There may even be a translation. There is a series that has translated the Rambam's um, work. I think the publisher is Mosnaim, if I'm not mistaken. And you'll find a series here in the library. They've taken each chapter and made a whole book out of it with a very good um, translation and very basic commentary. So you can do a lot of basic research before you come to these discussions and I try my best to challenge your you know, research with, um, with perhaps a little more depth and get ourselves thinking. The 13 things, without reading them in detail, I hope to do that at a later stage, are like this. First of all, Hashem's existence, that I believe that Hashem, God, exists, that's existence of Hashem. <coughs> Secondly is that He is one, that He's one and there's no other singleness or oneness like His, and that He is, here He uses a different word for God, which means Hashem, God, in control of the world, not just in His own root existence as it were, was, is, and will be. All of this needs tremendous explanation. The third is that he is not of any physical or corporeal manifestation. He has no body. And those who are inhabiting a form, a bodily form, cannot grasp him. And not only does he have no body, but he has no image. That means not even a Kabbalistic diagram will do. It's not good enough to say that he has no physical existence. It's also not acceptable to say that he had his, any abstract expression. No anthropomorphic, no matter how abstract the expression is, that's not, it's, it's wrong. Eh? That's the third. The fourth is that he is first and last. Fifth is, I don't know what this means. The fifth is that he is uh, the only one to whom it is fitting to, with whom to deal. In other words, the expression used is lis palel, which means basically to pray. Vain roi lis palel not only is he the only one to whom it is fitting to, let's say, speak directly, but have to understand, or, or to hear this in depth, but have to understand the concept of prayer, which is very, very challenging concept. And it's not fitting to turn to anyone else. Not only, and it's also in his explanation, why do you need to phrase it in the positive and the negative? Who else might you pray to? We'll see that there are other potentially valid sources that could have been prayed to. Six, that all the words of the prophets are true. She called All the words of the prophets are true. Seven. That the prophecy of Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, is true. And this is a very big challenge. Why does the Rambam need to put as two separate articles of faith the fact that all prophecy is true, and then say that the Rambam, the Rambam says that Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, his prophecy is true. He was the father of all prophets, both those who came before him and those after. Obviously, it doesn't mean in a gene genetic or genealogical or chronological sense. He means he was the father in a, in a um, conceptual sense. Therefore, he was the father of those who came before and after. Why do you need to believe that Moshe Rabbeinu's prophecy is of a different level as one of the 13 articles? That means not good enough to believe that he was one among the prophets and that his words were true. This is a separate article of faith. We'll have to understand this. Eight, that Hashem, that the Torah we have now is the one that was given to Moshe Rabbeinu. In other words, the belief in the existence and the truth and the absolute, um, what do you say, veracity and um, authenticity of Torah. Nine, that this Torah will never be changed. Right? There will never be another one, completely negating, for example, Christianity or Islam, any other, as far as we're concerned, any other addition or change, or even, even though it may keep the original text intact. Ten, that Hashem knows all the actions of human beings and their thoughts. Shenemam, <coughs> because it says, He creates their hearts. He understands all of their actions. And there's a big challenge here. I'm, I'm sure you can feel what it is. Can you feel what the question is here already? I'm sure your minds are racing ahead, right? What's unusual about this? You notice it's the first time in the list that he quotes a verse. Up to now, he's managed all nine of them simply stating that they're fundamentals. Here he feels it necessary to quote a verse. You'll have lots of thinking homework to do when you look through this list. You can't pare it down any finer than any, any more narrowly than this. Each one's only about one line. 
And yet in these, in these simple one or two line statements, tremendous questions are, are raised. Why in this case do you need a verse in the Torah to back it up? Eleventh, I believe in a big faith, that he rewards with goodness those who keep his commandments, who punishes those who transgress his commands. This is the doctrine of A long series. Reward and punishment. Twelve, I believe, etc. In the coming of the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messianic advent, even though he may wait or tarry, as they say in poetic English, with all that, despite all that, I will wait for him. He should come every day. This incidentally does not mean that you're required to believe that the Messiah is coming every, any and every day. You have to simply believe that it's possible. In other words, there's a very crude error. People think you're required to believe that the Mashiach is coming now. And to even begin announcing that he is, in fact, on the way. That you would, you would be very... Um, you would be statistically in a very weak position. Right? If you claimed each day... I mean, it would get pretty, I think... Um, shall we say... I think it would be quite... Um, what's the word? Discouraging. No? If you woke up every day with a full and final belief that he will be here today. Will not be pleasant, right? You're not required to believe that he will be here today. You're required to believe that it is possible that at any moment, in other words, you have to be waiting for that for that day, not believing that it will be today. Right? That's not it. And thirteen, what is the final one? What remains after the messianic phase? Resurrection of the dead. that the dead will be revived at a suitable time. These are the thirteen these are the thirteen articles of faith. What's not clear? If it, if it says that, that God has no physical form, why in the Torah does it say... Um, that's, the only problem, that's the only problem that's bothering me out of this list. <laughs> no, no, but that's the most, that's the most the one that strikes me immediately. That's one of the advantages principle. But this one, there's a direct contradiction. That's one serious question, and we'll attempt to deal with it. We'll have to assure you that there are many other serious questions here. Many other questions. Let's, before we get into those specifics, let's look at, um, let's, let's try and think a bit, more, a bit more deeply. The first question here, perhaps, is, the first question is, what is the source of these 13, what is the source of these 13 things? It's a fundamental question. You know that the Rambam is compiling the uh, laws of the Torah. The Rambam used all the sources in the Torah. In fact, one of the mysteries and marvels of the Rambam's major work is that he used all the sources, Chumash, the Midrashim, the entire Mishnah Gemara, obviously, um, the Sifri, the Sifra. The Rambam used all extant sources and compiled his famous magnum opus, the Yad HaZaka, as it's known, or the Mishnah Torah, and he compiled it from all Torah sources. The first question one asks in studying the Rambam, who, as you know, lived in the 1100s, right? 12th century, 11th, 12th century. Rambam, when he quotes something, when he makes a statement, it is based squarely on the shoulders of, or the feet, if you like, of Chazal, the early authorities going all the way back. The Raman does not assemble his own, right? He does write a philosophical work known as the Guide to the Perplexed, which the Raman, as you probably know, not wrote in Arabic because it was a polemic that was written for the benefit of the intellectuals of his generation who were cultured and uh, worldly, worldly people, and the, the, the spoken language of the day, his world was Arabic, was written in Arabic. But his, but his formal, let's say, Torah works, which are compendia of Torah law, right, which are formally written in Hebrew, of course, even the Marina Bukim, obviously, is based, every statement there is based on authentic Torah source. But certainly here, we expect it to be based on fundamental Torah sources. After all, you're talking about 13 articles of faith. What could be more fundamental than these? The very challenging question is, where did he get them from? Because a cursory look at Torah, and I'm sure everyone in this room has enough knowledge of Torah from a scriptural point of view, and probably everyone in this room also has enough knowledge of oral tradition, the Mishnah, which is handed down orally, and the Talmud, to know that there are no 13 things that are listed in any of those sources, right? If you, if you skim through with your encyclopedic knowledge, right, rapidly, I'll, I'll give you a few seconds to do it, if you skim through your, your inbuilt inner CD-ROM, you will not identify 13, these 13 things. There are ten fundamentals that the Torah lists that I'm sure you could identify, no? The ten commandments the Torah speaks out more than once. So to identify ten commandments would not be a problem. And if you have some Kabbalistic knowledge, you could probably also identify ten 
elemental units. They, that, but 13 things, 13 fundamentals, where, where does the Torah say that these things are, where does the Torah list 13 things? And where does the Torah say that these are fundamental? In what sense are they fundamental? On the contrary, in his elaboration of one of these, not here, but in the, in the, in the Mishnah where the Rambam goes into detail, the Rambam himself says that a person who contravenes, that means a person who denies any part of Torah, any word of Torah, has denied the whole Torah. Seemingly suggesting that there aren't any more fundamental parts than any other parts. Again, the Rambam lists 13 things. These are fundamental. Implying that those that are not listed here are not fundamental. Right? But in one of these, when he elaborates, the Rambam says, if you deny one word of Torah, an example he gives, Timna, which means, and the sister of Lotan was Timna. It's a statement in Genesis, in Bratius, right? In the genealogy of the families that live. What on earth difference does it make to know that the sister of Lotan was Timna to any Jewish observance? You could be a very good Jew, I assure you. In all your practical observance of all the mitzvahs, you could be a fine and refined person and a very spiritual person without knowing who Lotan's sister was and that her name was Timna, right? Says the Rambam, if you omit that, if you deny that, you've denied the whole Torah, the whole Torah falls apart. The Kabbalistic analogy is, because the Torah is like an electric circuit. It's an organic entity. When you pull the plug on one part of an electric circuit, it doesn't matter which part. It can be the power cell that generates the flow of current, or it can be one meaning, seemingly meaningless piece of wire in an electric circuit. You pull it out, the lights don't come on. The Torah is an organic entity where each part is intimately interconnected, and if you pull out one piece of it doesn't matter if it's a transistor or a battery or a piece of wire, the whole Torah falls apart. Each of the 600,000 letters in the Torah, or classically 600,000, there are only about 300,000, but 300,000 thousand letters in the Torah. You take one of those, or even partially take one of those letters away, the whole Torah disappears, it's not valid anymore. So therefore, that's the axiom, why are these more fundamental? You take away any word, the whole thing collapses. Why are these more important? In what sense? In what sense are they more important? That's a challenge. Why are they more important? And if they are more important, why doesn't the Torah say so? Right? Where are they listed? That's a, that's a challenge. Now, secondly, there's a famous work known as the Bala Ikrim. The Bala Ikrim writes a work which is dedicated to this very subject, the 13 Articles of Faith. He takes the Rambam to task. He takes these comments of the Rambam and he says, he asks many very searching questions on these things. One question he asks, for example, is, why are these things fundamental? If you mean that these things are fundamental, that means that the religion stands on them, let alone Torah, but a religion, a religion. You know, these things, you're talking about a, a system of commandment that is a creator who is in absolute authority, the ultimate and absolute source. And he commands you what it is that he, whatever it is that he commands you. He wants you to wear clothing that doesn't have sharpness in, that's what he commands. He wants you to eat pork, that's fine. If you're a non-Jew, he doesn't mind if you eat pork. He minds if you kill people. He commands you a whole list of commandments. If you're a man, you've got a certain number. If you've got a Kohen, you've got another number of mitzvahs. If you're a woman, you've got other mitzvahs. Different realities that he commands you. Before you discuss the commandments, you have to have a basis for this system that we call religion, let alone Judaism. Right? Any religion. Any religion to be Judaism. If you're going to tell me about a religion, which means a boss who, author, who, who, who has certain commandments, and we as the servants have to fulfill those commandments, then you need certain axioms, don't you? I mean, you need to know that he's there, don't you? That he speaks to me, that his commandments are, yeah, are valid and mine. All these elements, yeah, you might, says the Balek, if that's true, if what the Rambam means is, that these are the fundamentals, that logically they come first, these are the fundamentals of faith, then he has lots of problems. Lots of problems. For example, why aren't many others listed, such as, such as free will? The existence of free will is absolutely fundamental. If you don't, and all philosophers agree to that too, if you don't postulate that you have free will, then nothing's meaningful. You can't, be, you can't talk about reward and punishment, for example, here, if you don't talk about free will. Surely free will is more fundamental than reward and punishment. Surely the fact that I have free will to obey or disobey is a prerequisite for them going on to tell me the consequence that is you'll be rewarded if you do and punished if you don't. If I'm not free, you can't reward me and punish me. If I'm just the result, like many modern thinkers say, I'm the result of all my inputs, right? My actions are the outputs of my inputs. I'm no more free than an amoeba or a worm or any physical system for that matter. Right? Whether it's quantum mechanical or whether it's classical Newtonian, whatever it is. If I'm just the output of all my inputs, then you certainly can't reward me or punish me. Is that right? If I'm the result of all my inputs, all my genetics and my uh, socialization and my psychological inputs and so forth, and I do what I do, you can't punish me, and you can't reward me. Huh? Because I'm not free. Why isn't that mentioned? There are many questions that he asks, which are, and furthermore, he turns it around as well, and he says, if you're going to list fundamentals, you could, go, you could have gotten away with less. <coughs> you could have gotten away with less, and he names what he means. He says, you could have laid out three fundamentals. If all you mean is that there are certain issues that you need to know, 
that on the basis for a religion as such, you could have got away with three. One, existence of God. Two, Torah min That Torah comes, that there's communication, not only that exists, but he commands, he tells me what to do, he makes his, he makes his will known. And three, reward and punishment. After all, yeah, the, the, the outcome of those first two is that I'm now obliged and there are consequences of my actions. I mean, apart from the simple understanding that you need motivation. You need motivation. The Torah provides very strong motivation. The motivation is that the reward will be the, what we call existence in the next world, infinite. And the punishment will be the, 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 the negative motivation also very, very sharply and clearly defined. Very clearly defined, right? In some of the very graphic descriptions of it are too horrendous to even, even contemplate. I mean, we'll go through them in practical detail. Don't worry. <laughs> that's when the attendance will thin out. But uh, the point is that um, the, that's all you need. Why do you need to talk about... If you're going to tell me that there are three pillars, right, three fundamentals on which a religion stands, those are surely enough. And he asks many other questions, and apart from his questions, many others have been asked. So we have a, a set of questions that we need to, we need to begin to deal with Basically, first of all, where did the rabbi get them? And secondly, what exactly is the meaning of these, uh, these, these things? Um, there are many others, I mean, uh, many other puzzling issues. I'll give you one of them. Uh, let's deal with it. Let's begin here and see where it takes us. How, so far, are we together? Anything difficult? Any questions at this point? Okay, so let's, let's proceed. Let's start with the question we began with. Where is the Rambam's source, Maimonides, where does he get these 13 things from? The truth is that the Torah does not list 13 fundamentals, and in fact the Mishnah does not, in any place, the Mishnah, the repository, total and comprehensive repository of the oral law, does in no place say that there are 13 things that are more fundamental than anything else. However, there is one place in the Mishnah, which if you look carefully, lists 13, and they are these 13. Not phrased this way, but phrased in the exact opposite, phrased exactly in the negative. And that source is compiled in the Rambam's major halakhic work. You see, one of the fundamental questions that's also been asked about the Ikrim, about these fundamentals, is if they are so important, and the Rambam composed these 13 and wrote such a detailed analysis of them, why does he not rule on them when it comes to ruling... Again, if these are the most important things in Judaism, then when you give me a list of Jewish law, surely these should be at the forefront. When the, is, this, is this correct? When the Rambam writes the Yara Chazata, his major compilation of, of Torah law, right, which goes through every law you can imagine, what you do when you wake up in the morning, all the details of how you get married, how you build a sukkah, how you, you know, from beginning of life to the end of life, every detail, it's the comprehensive original codification of Jewish law. The code of Jewish law that we use, the Shulchan Aruch, is a virtual copy, virtually a copy, of Yosef Karo, writing in the 1500s, lifted virtually the entire text of the, not exactly, he differs in certain places, and Ashkenazi in the Ramor differs, has a number of arguments, but very much the pattern of the code of Jewish law that we use today, the definitive code of Jewish law, is based on this original codification. So it is absolutely comprehensive, it's the first comprehensive codification of Jewish law. And the Rambam is not afraid to include in his codification fundamentals of laws too. For example, in what he calls Hilchas Yisraelia Torah, which are the laws of the fundamentals of the Torah. Right? The Rambam doesn't hesitate to say that, uh, that Hashem's existence is primary and all heaven and earth is secondary to his existence. And if you should think to yourself that maybe his existence does not, is not true, it follows philosophically that no other existence could be. He's not, he's not afraid to go through all of that. The Rambam's got a whole major section dealing with this. Not only that, he goes through the structure of the spiritual world, which angels are above, which other angels, how the command system of angelic authority goes. It's all here in his work of Jewish law. This is not philosophy. He wrote other books on philosophy. This is the Rambam's book of how you are bound by Jewish law. Right? And... Um, Yes, Yochus Deus, not only does he deal here the Rambam with the fundamentals of Torah, he goes into the fundamentals of what's healthy. Even those aspects of Torah that are healthy. Right? All the way down to how you handle yourself in the bathroom. How you live the married life in intimate terms. How you, how you eat food. All the things. How you, you know, what they call today stress management and, uh, uh, you know, all, all that essential stuff. But Illnesses. How illnesses are caused. Fundamentals of healing. I mean, it's all here. These are laws, you need to know these, because you shouldn't eat in certain, 
in a certain way. You shouldn't, uh, these are laws, right? You need to know them. So if that's true, why doesn't the Rambam rule on these 13 fundamentals? They must have a lachic expression. Do you hear the question? And the answer is, of course, he does. And the source is surprising at first, but when you follow it through, you see how it operates. The Mishnah has a listing primarily found in Sanhedrin, but spread out in a few places. The Mishnah lists 13 categories, not of fundamental belief at all, but the Mishnah lists 13 things that, or rather a list of things, that if a person transgresses, you have no share in the world to come. That's what the Mishnah does. The Mishnah says there are certain people who transgress certain fundamental things that those lead to a loss of a transcendent existence. That means you want to move from this world to a higher existence, you want to move from this world to another plane, then there are 13 things that sever that connection. And the Rabbah compiles them comprehensively. And he, and he rules on them. And let me read you his words. And let's see if we can identify in these words of those negative things for which a person transgressing loses a share in the world to come, let's see if we can see a parallel to our statements. In the third chapter of the Laws of Tshuva, Laws of Repentance, the Rambam says the following. First of all, very significant, he starts to talk about this world and the next. The Rambam says that, uh, talks about re- the existence in the world after this, and he says that uh, those who are negative are losing a share in that world. He goes into a whole calculation, how a person is judged according to the majority of his actions, uh, if you have um, a majority of positive actions, then that outweighs your negative actions, and you have a share in the world to come, the negative actions have to be paid out in a particular dimension. If you're a person who has a majority of negative actions, 51%, then you are, you, you, then, then there's very, very serious consequences. And the, but even then, with those most serious of consequences, the positive side is also rewarded, because the exact balancing. And it goes into great detail based on the Gemara, that if a person is, what if you 50-50, says the Rambam, but you have you get a certain credit balance. You get, you get well, it's very interesting here. You get a certain credit balance. If you have one more sin than mitzvahs, it's, uh, you get credit for that. And you have two more as well. And then you get to the calculation. After you get to a certain number, then there's no more credit, and then you get punished also for those that you previously got credit. Well, the calculation, if not, it's worth knowing. Not that I would cut it that fine, but you have another calculation. And this is half half, this person, exactly what happens. If in the half of the sins of these individuals, and it happen to be men who never put on tefillin, single that out. My own ever. It's a terrible sin. Singled out. Very special reason why he, put, he singles out tefillin. Tefillin is that mitzvah which opens a man's brain. That means the Kabbalistic name of tefillin, it breaks through the skull. It is a method of reopening the fontanelle where a child has a, has a, a, a when an adult has a bony interposition between his, his world of consciousness and the higher world, Tefillin is a reopening of that space that was once open. When a child is born, you know, you can feel the brain pulsating. Right? And the bony layer closes that off. Right? Tefillin is a reopening of this. Women, of course, women, of course, don't, uh, don't wear Tefillin. They have no hope of making connection. <laughs> <laughs> women, as you know, never lose their connection. <laughs> women never lose their connection with the higher world, and therefore, this is one of the reasons that only tell you. But a man, a man <laughs> is losing this connection. Tefillin is a reopening, and therefore, of course, we put on tefillin every day. In the old days, they used to wear tefillin all the time, not just once a day. They were capable of having the bodily cleanliness. You do wear tefillin, you have to have an impeccably clean body. Right? If your body is soiled in any way, even the most minute way, you can't wear tefillin. You should also have a mind that is impeccably clean to wear tefillin. And today, a very so- sorry admission of our state is we only wear tefillin for one of the prayer services in the day, chakris, right? Hopefully, at least, from the beginning of chakris till the end, hopefully you're so sleepy still you haven't had time to think of anything. <laughs> <laughs> most people down in all chakris totally unconscious. <laughs> until, they, until they finally get to Hayyom Yom Yuvim today is you got to remind yourself what day it is until then it's all running on automatic and therefore so we wear tefillin all you have to be aware of when you wake up in the morning is to clean your body well enough scrupulously enough you can wear tefillin today we only manage for that amount of time in old times they wore tefillin all day except during the night or except when they went into a place of uncleanness like a shower or bathroom then they would take off their tefillin but um but a person who's never put on tefillin says, well, not only once a day, but at least once a kosher pair of tefillin. 
not not the ones you had when you were Jumbo Mitzvah that were completely invalid in the first place. We're talking about a kosher pair to fill in the person who make an extreme effort at least once in a lifetime to put those on. You come into a place like this, there are many places somebody will be happy to lend you a pair if they want. Do that at least. At least you should certainly buy your own pair. That is... All evil, negative people whose sins are more weighty than the mitzvahs have a pain. He describes what happens to such a people. A share in the world is the higher one. And similarly, righteous Gentiles, says quite clearly here, this, this work of the Rambam is all of Torah, not only Jews, and therefore he has a major section, and not here, but a major section elsewhere on the law of the Torah for non-Jews. And in fact, you may well know, and if you are aware of this, but there is at least one well-known sect of non-Jews today who are practicing the laws of the Torah. you know about them? No. They call themselves the Noahides. I personally met some of them. They were originally a fundamentalist a, a, a church in the southern United States who came across certain uh, philosophical questions, eventually found certain rabbis in Baltimore to teach them. Cut a long story short, a few years ago, they founded a sect called the Noahide Church. Do you know about this? The Noahide Church... That is a church that they took a steeple of their church and all the crucifixes out, and they are observing the Torah laws for Noahides, for non-Jews. They, in fact, I happen to know a young rabbi who, who teaches them, and I happen to know a more senior rabbi who's been known to give them lessons on how to learn Chumash. And I also happen to know at least one family where five boys in that family ended up converting to Judaism, although it's unusual. They usually don't. They, they follow the laws of the Noahides. The Judaism teaches that you don't have to convert. We don't look for converts, right? The Rambam makes the plain that a non-Jew has a share in the world to come. We don't hold that we're the only... We, the only, we do hold we're the only way, but the un- <laughs> that means the only way... Let's get this clear. We hold that the Torah is valid for all mankind. Not that you have to be Jewish. The Torah is valid. You can be whatever you are and do what the Torah says to you as a human being, whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew or a man or a woman or whatever it is. Have, that's what you have to do. And therefore, they are living those lives. They have, uh, if you think the Balei Tshuva in this generation have trouble explaining to their families what they're doing, you should hear these discussions between these fundamentalist Baptists telling their fundamentalist Baptist families why they are now adopting a non-Jewish, Jewish, you know, Torah point. It, it's very, I can show you very, it's, it's put a bloody fire and brimstone. But um, that's what they do, and they, they're a well-known sect, and they keep these laws. And Rabbi says quite clearly, Chassidei righteous Gentiles, have a, a, a share in the world to come. Elsewhere, the Rambam explains that a righteous Gentile is not, is definitely not a, a non-Jew who simply does what's right. That's not good enough. Let's get this clear. A non-Jew who does what's right is not good enough. A non-Jew who does what's right is good enough to do what's right and lives, if a non-Jew, for example, lives the laws of the Torah, right? All seven laws of the Torah for a non-Jew. Not killing, stealing, murdering, adultery, sexual immorality, not being cruel to animals, all the seven laws, including a generalized system of formulating a legal system for the non-Jewish world, which is one of the seven, to ensure a fair and just society. If a non-Jew does that because it makes sense and it builds a fair and just and wonderful society, there's no share in the world to come. Why? Because if he does it to make a fine world, the result is he has a fine world. That doesn't give him a transcendent and mystical that you have to do because you do it for that reason. The Raman says quite plainly where he deals with this in, in I'm only going into this because in these forums, uh, lot, often non-Jews attend, and a lot of people contemplating conversion often speak to me and others here. So I'm taking the time to, to mention this. A non-Jew wants to share in the world to come. Ramon says, has to do what the Torah says to build a fine and better world because it says so in the Torah that was given at Sinai. If he omits that, he is a fine human being, and all the credit goes to him, but he has no transcendent eternal life. To have a transcendent eternal life, you have to invest in the trans- you have to do what you're doing here because it comes from there. Is this, this is logical, right? You only get profits where you invest, you open an account. You have to have an account somewhere. Once you open an account, you can expect dividends. But you never open an account, you invest someplace, there are no profits in that place. This person has to live in this world because he's invested in another world. If he makes this world a better place because he's connected to another world, then the results of having lived a good and just life in this world are, in fact, <coughs> a connection to another world. But simply living a finite existence because it's good to live a good finite existence, the result is a good finite existence. Is this clear? Okay, so the Rambam deals plenty with non-Jews. Now, listen well. These are those who have no share in the world to come. Ella, and this is very... From here on in, let me warn you, it gets more and more frightening. You, This is where you can start holding onto your seat. 
They are judged for the enormity of their evil, the chatosam and their sins, forever and ever and ever. Now, forever and ever and ever. That you just never find in the words of the Rishon. They always speak very briefly. The Rambam is a Rishon, right? He lived 800 years ago. In those days, they all Torah sages speak in minimum words, minimal words. The trouble is that as generations have gone by, more and more words have become the necessary minimum because <coughs> our understanding is deficient. <coughs> but back then, when you were speaking to people of intelligence, you could simply say very few words. The Rambam takes the trouble to say these people are cut off forever and ever and ever. Okay, so what we're dealing with is serious. Kabbalistically, it's not true. Kabbalistically, no one's ever cut off forever and ever and ever, but this is a measure of how difficult it is to get beyond that ever and ever and ever. So I wouldn't bank on that if you were looking to cut corners. And he says this, these are, the, these are the categories of people who are having no share in the world to come. That means cut off from a spiritual existence. He realizes it doesn't only mean when you die. That's a simple understanding. It means you die in this world and there's no other place to go, right? And, or, or, yeah. But it means much more than that. It means even while here there's no, there's no connection to another world. This person has severed their connection. They're living in this world as a piece of biological material. Right? As, a, as a, you know, um, as a statistical fact. They're not living here as a spiritual being. Right? It begins here. Whether they die now or die later, they totally regard such a person as having died already. These are the people. Minim. These are all going to need detailed translation. But I'll read you the list first of all. Minim in English you would say, I don't know what the right English word is, I suppose atheist, something like that. All these words have... To, uh, <coughs> complex connotations in English. And min literally means in Hebrew a species. Right? It doesn't only mean it in the obvious derogatory sense. It means <coughs> it's part of the natural order, basically. So you said English and atheist. Secondly, Epicurean. Very hard to translate. The formal English translation is an Epicurean. Which means, again, a person who's disconnected from any higher world, lives in the pleasures of this world. We'll have to see what he means. Thirdly, Akafrim Batera. Person who denies Torah. I come from Tchirsa Mesim, person who denies the resurrection of the dead. Rabia Sagoel denies the um, messianic concept. Hanmoyedim, those who are rebelling against Torah. Again, the Rambam in the next page goes into very great detail about all of these things. The Mitzvah Shem will, will be able to see them through. Amachdiyah Harabim, people who lead the masses astray. There's a very bitter, very bitter category of people who are supposedly teachers, rabbis, teachers who mislead people, who take them away from Torah. Not, I'm certainly not going to mention any <laughs> sects or branches or cults or I'm not even going to risk even hinting to any of them. But any so-called rabbis or Torah teachers who are responsible for a flock or congregation or multiple numbers of Jews, and they take them astray. The Rambam says later, it doesn't matter, this is the fundamental thing to understand here, it doesn't matter if they take them astray in major issues like the others in this list, or very minor issues. You realize the logic of that? Because if this was a person who took people away from <coughs> only the same things that are self-contained in this list, it would be obvious. All they're doing is causing, of course, if you cause someone else to do that which has the same enormity that should cause you a loss, in the world to come, it's only fitting that you yourself should lose it. Therefore, there'd be nothing new about this category we logically derive. Ramadan Bazar to say he doesn't mean that. He means a person who takes the masses astray, even from something very minor. Not only somebody who causes the masses to transgress a prohibition, but even somebody who tells the masses not to fulfill a mitzvah, which is much less severe than transgressing a prohibition, a negative command. This is not somebody who urges the masses to kill and pillage and plunder and, and, and steal. And, and This is simply somebody who yeah, it takes the masses even just away from a positive commandment. <coughs> I want to say quite clearly, even just to negate a positive mitzvah, that's a weighty thing, of course, <coughs> but it's much less weighty than the transgressions that are contained here. Such a person has no share in the world to come. Hakorishin Midage Sibur, the next category is somebody who separates himself from the ways of the Jewish community. It's a remarkable thing that. And again, can you, feel, can you feel the meaning? The meaning is not somebody who separates himself from Jews in the sense that he transgresses these things. That obviously is not a, any news. He means somebody who, in fact, 
makes quite plain that the rabbi, he, he means this. Somebody who separates himself or herself from the Jewish way, from the Jewish people, right? As a bonded entity, that means he's no longer an organic part of the Jewish people, even if he does nothing wrong. After all, the sin is separating from the Jewish people. If this person separates himself in the sense that he does un-Jewish things, so they're not other guilty, those are the issues. This person is not Jewish because he eats unkosher food, doesn't keep Shabbos. So then that's his guilt. This is the person who eats kosher food, he keeps Shabbos. He prays three times, does everything he has to do, but he's separate from the Jewish people. The expression that Ramam uses, he doesn't rejoice on the days of our rejoicing, he doesn't fast on the Jewish fast days. No, no, not that he's transgressing Yom Kippur by eating, he doesn't mean those kind of fasts. He means being organically <coughs> your identity as a spiritual being in the world is in as much as you are an organic part of the Jewish people. <coughs> the truth is, Kabbalistically, this applies in as much as you are human. Because we're all originally part of one human body, which was Adam. Now, the Jewish people is one particular branching of that reality, which is our primary obligation. At a much deeper level, it applies to the human. Incidentally, this doesn't mean you have to hang around with Jews. Or, for that matter, humans, if you're a human. Right? It doesn't mean... It doesn't mean... On the contrary, on the contrary, the Rambam has himself a ruling that if you live in an evil generation, where you can't find a decent community, you have to go and live in a cave in the desert. He rules that. Definitively, it's an obligation. If you live in a place where you can't find a moral environment, right? <coughs> like you hang out on the North Circular, for example. <coughs> it's better to go and live in a cave in the desert. Yeah, that's a Jewish obligation. That doesn't mean you're not part of the Jewish people. <coughs> Is this clear? Now, we'll come into the details later. Next, somebody who does sins in a high-handed fashion. I'm sure by this time you can already define it for yourself. What does that mean? What does it mean, sins in a high-handed fashion? Publicly, flagrantly, denying. Yeah, what does it mean? Which kind of sins? Any. It huh? doesn't, mean, doesn't mean cardinal. If a person does one of these things in a high-handed fashion, he can do it privately. He's already severed his connection. This means a person who does minor things but in a blatant, flagrant demonstration of, right? You understand? Like certain Jurish politicians, I'm again not going to risk mentioning even, not even the country from which they came. Who <laughs> 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 were once hosted in the White House. Unfortunately, and this is, this is, a, this is Jewish Ali, it's a remarkable thing, this. They were once, uh, it was in the early days of the state. I'm not saying which state. <laughs> <laughs> They were hosted in the White House, and the White House laid on a kosher buffet, because these were the leaders of the Jewish state. There was food for the diplomats, and there was a kosher buffet for the Jewish thing. And they went deliberately in front of all television cameras to eat from the non-Jewish, non-kosher food, right? Not because of callous, not because of callous, um, but because they felt that they would be consistent with it. They didn't want to be hypocritical. They understand the Jewish, they understand this. Why would a, lead, a head of state not eat a special traditional yeah, the, the, the way the White House works is they put on traditional whatever you are. If you're a vegetarian from, from Burma or you're a, they do your thing because that's, that's how it goes in royal, in royal circles. So why would the head of state not accept that courtesy? Why not? That's, it's, that, that, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a diplomatic insult at the highest level. Why would you do that? Because it's a, it's a misguided ideology. It's not a callous insensitivity. I don't know if this is clear to you. Let me try and illustrate this. I mean, it's going to take us a long time to get through this whole list. Is that, is that okay? You're not sure, huh? The Wednesday night is not a quick fix. It's a lot of hard work together, right? Well, yes, it is. And uh, <laughs> Let me give you the illustration. I'll give you an illustration. I spent a couple of years in the South African Army. That was my good fortune, was to be a medical officer in the South Vietnam. I was in a battalion of medical, uh, it was a medical battalion. You know, a, and the particular training I went through before officer training was a, was a boot camp, you know, a, 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 a drill camp in which the soldiers there were either doctors or dentists or medics in general training to be a battle, uh, what do you call it, um, paramedic type of thing. That was what it was. Now, in that camp, we had a kosher kitchen. Right? We had a kosher kitchen. We had thousands of soldiers. We had a couple of hundred Jews. 
and we had a kosher kitchen. The reason was the South African army undertook that it provided for the religious needs of, of, of you know, of, of, so they, um, they provided for our religious needs. They did it very well. I mean, the first Sunday, the first Sunday we had what's called camp parada, you know, that's a church parade. Church parade. You all have to line up for church. Now, in South, South Africa, it's quite a, uh, what do you call it, um, cosmopolitan society. And there are lots of different, and the Christian groups alone, there are, there are many, right? So we had to line up in our churches. But they hadn't thought of a Jewish church. So they put us with the Catholics. <laughs> they thought, they thought the Dutch Reformed Church thought that they were more or less the most similar, you know, they thought that we looked a bit, uh, I was once, can you handle it aside? I was once, there is a here. I was once in, uh, in Bromfontein, part of Johannesburg, which was a bit sort of seedy, seedy side, and it was dusk, sun was going down, and I was in a small tailor shop when I turned to leave, and a couple, uh, three or four thugs entered the store. And um, these people entered, and they began making obvious, uh, very obvious indication that there was going to be violence and probably bloodshed. And they began, you know, very violent behavior. They hadn't noticed me. I was still at the back of the shop. But they were going to destroy whoever, you know, was in the park, obviously. There was no way out. It was completely trapped. They were standing in the doorway. And that's the only way, obviously, was to handle it, you know, full frontal, just, you know, side, just walk straight up. And as they saw me coming, the leader of them, as he saw me, he said, Sorry, Father. <laughs> The point is that, um, getting a little sidetracked here, but the point is that in this military base we had a uh, kosher kitchen, right? Now, what happened on Sundays in our I'll tell you some other time. The point is that we were put with Catholics and it didn't last long. But uh, the point is we had this kosher kitchen. Now, in this kosher kitchen was an absolute delight. You know, the army is about the worst place you can ever hope to end up. I mean, it's. uh, in terms of, um, certainly in terms of spiritual, you know, bliss, I would say, there's, there are better places to be. But from a Jewish point of view, lunch in that place was about the best place you could ever have to be because we had a kosher kitchen that catered for a relatively small number and we had expert chefs and there was no expense spared. I mean, the army was paying for the best kosher food. Now, the normal army food was virtually inedible, you can imagine. I mean, it was like, it, it really... You know, they didn't need to cook much because the little bit that they did cook, you know, was so awfully in terms of appetite that, you know. So there were thousands and thousands of soldiers lining up for this sort of, um, uh, so, uh, sort of uh, unidentifiable, risky looking stuff. And, um, and we, this relatively small group, we all marched in and sat down and we were not only, we were actually served by the kosher chefs who were highly trained. They'd been through a special uh, Jewish uh, chaplaincy, tra- you know, cooking. They gave us like this. It was gourmet, you know, kosher food. I mean, it was like really, luxury as much as you wanted served at the time, you know. So, that's what we did, right? Now, what, we, what else could you do? That, that's how it was done. There's one Jewish soldier, who was a highly intelligent fellow, who was part of my battalion, who was a very, very skilled anesthetist, who never ate kosher food. He always waited in the line with the non-Jewish soldiers, and he always ate the non-kosher food. Right? The only one. There were about 200 of us. It was the only, all that culture. We all stuck together. In fact, there was a lot of reason to stick together because, you know, <coughs> there was anti-Semitic um, incidents and uh, there was a very strong identity. We all, all stuck together. He was part of our group. He came to all the things that we did. But he would every mealtime, he would go and stand in the non-kosher line and eat his non-kosher. So one day I took him aside and I said to him, very gently, I said, uh, you know, why are you doing this? It's very important that we all stick together, you know. I said, I'm well aware that you don't eat kosher food at home. Uh, I know you don't come from a religious background, but uh, some, most of us don't. Most of the boys in this unit, Jews, don't come from any religious background, but they eat the kosher food because we all do things together. It's very important to do that. <coughs> he said to me like this. He said, do you think I wouldn't like to eat the kosher food? The reason I'm doing this is for ideological reasons. What are the ideological reasons? I don't come from a religious background. I don't eat kosher food. These, these non-Jewish fellows know that I don't eat kosher food. I'm now going to come into this situation and sit down and eat the kosher food, which is better, without waiting, with all the luxury and all the things. What are they going to think of me? 
they get to think that here's a Jew who's a complete hypocrite. You have this argument? That means they're going to know that I'm a person. I don't, they see me eat out in restaurants. They know that I'm not, I don't observe anything else. Now suddenly they see that when it suits me, because it's the lines are shorter, the food is better, I'm eating kosher food, they look down on me. Right? And therefore, for ideological reasons to represent my Judaism. That's not a simple argument. That's not, that's not a simple argument. It's not, it's not simple. To defeat that argument is not simple. I told him I thought he was wrong. Because overriding that consideration, which you have to respect, was the fact that we needed to do things together. And there was a certain group thing, and he said he thought about that. And he, he decided that that also was very important. But despite that, he felt that this non-hypocritical approach was a more moral approach. And we had to agree to do it. So, you understand? So, the Rabbi says, a person, who, a person who, who is flagrantly disobeying Jewish law, I'm not sure that that case would qualify. I'm not sure that case would qualify. But a person who flagrantly disobeys it to demonstrate that he holds it to be nothing in public, right? that is a person who has no shame in the world to come. He's not attached to the Jewish people in that sense. Right, we'll have to go into more detail. Next. He says, he says categorically, that's the people for Hesse publicly. Next. Moistrim. These are people who hand others over to authorities. That means, let's say there's a non-Jewish regime. And some people are handing over... You understand? They are... What do you call that? A, a moiser is a... Uh, yeah, a treacherous handing over, right? To, and he explains later it could mean for physical violence or also even for financial damage. Right? Handing over. What happens in the case where the Jew who is being handed over it is in fact guilty or in fact breaking non-Jewish law becomes an interesting question we have to see. But this is a betrayal of yeah, the, the group by handing one over. The next category is those who are terrifying the masses or those under their care, let's say, without any... That means lording it in a manifestation of power without any good reason. People who murder. Okay? Here we get eventually to... Murder, vale lashon hara. If you really want to terrify yourself, silly people who speak slander, lashon hara. Speak lashon hara. You lose a share in the world to come. Lashon hara means you say something derogatory about somebody that's true. Not that's false. That's another old problem. That, as it happens, it's worse. As it happens, but just for starters, is a Jew who says something negative about someone else that's true. We're not talking about well, that's lashon hara. We'd have to study. We did it a couple of years ago, I think. We have to go through it again. But Lashon Hara means that you simply state categorically and plainly that somebody has a tendency to get angry. And so-and-so loses his temper, or so-and-so is a bad player. That's called Lashon Hara, right? It's a true statement about someone else that is uh, derogatory, is called Lashon Hara. The only saving grace here, perhaps, if you want to feel there's any hope for you, is that the wording here is Ba'alei Lashon Hara. That very clearly means a person whose essence is involved with this. This does not mean a person who occasionally, on the contrary, all our sources tell us that occasionally saying something denigrating or something slighting about someone else or indicating something negative about someone else is almost unavoidable. Almost unavoidable. That's why at the end of the Shemona Esrei, at the end of the prayer service that we are saying at least three times a day, we add a prayer for our words. Right? And we say like this, Elokai, Hashem. God, my tongue from speaking and my lips from speaking that which is false. In other words, you have a special prayer here to be protected and delivered, guarded from speaking things that are not true and even more deeply and more importantly, those things that are true but negative or denigrating about someone else. Why do you say this prayer? I once asked my Rebbe, why do you ask for this? You don't ask for help in other sinful areas. Why isn't there a lot of this? There are a lot of things people are prone to Right, that are very, very damaging spiritually, why don't you yeah, why don't you end your filler with a whole list of all the things that you might fall into that are simple and ask him to help? On the contrary, those are your free will. Stand up like a man or a woman and, 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 and don't do things that are bad. Why are you not asking? What why are you asking him to get you yeah, you to take he said to me, These are so easily transgressed. They're virtually unavoidable and if it weren't for divine help you'd you that is to say things that are not accurate, to say things that are entirely true is virtually universal. To be sure that every word you say is exactly accurate, measured and true and appropriate, extremely <coughs> difficult. And to be sure that everything you say is kindly and beneficial and not in any way slighting is extremely difficult. Extremely difficult. And therefore, 
In other words, it does not mean you lose a share in the world to come from having occasionally indicated something in dubious circumstances that was negative. His language is people who live by the energy of putting other people down. Right? A baal, a baal means a, someone who's husbanded that thing or an owner of that thing. It means he, he or she, do you understand? That's what it means. Having said that, you know, there are a lot of people that don't think it's that distant from, from you or me. There are a lot of people who have a major component of their life is, is having chats about other people, right? And finally, Hamoshech or Lossoi, someone who tries to undo his circumcision, to be uncircumcised. Someone who is circumcised who tries to undo the fact that he has a, a circumcision. Now we'll need to, we'll need to, to uh, understand these categories and, and uh, we'll, need to, we'll need to go into this. So let's say for tonight, let's wrap it up with this. By way of introduction, we have posed the following question. We have said, what is the source of the Rambam's 13 articles of faith? Where did he get them from? They're nowhere in the Torah list 13 fundamentals. Answer, the Mishnah does list, and the Rambam himself does rule on 13 articles that are the negatives of these things. I'm just going to spend two minutes to show you the parallelism. What I did tonight was read through the list in general. But all I'd like to show you is when you read through the list specifically, because the rabbi now goes through each of these categories after giving you the general headings and breaks each one down. All I'd like to share with you is the specific parallel between these negative expressions and these positive ones to show you that these, in fact, are the source for this. Next week, Yemitz Hashem, we'll try to go into the exact nature of the parallels and the depth behind each one. So let me just do this for this evening, which is as follows. What was the first category? Atheists, right? Minim. Let's just take two of them. Minim and Apikosim. Two different categories of atheists. Listen carefully. Says the Rambam. What are Minim? And I'm going to read you the two lists in parallel, okay? What are Minim? One. Somebody who says that the world has no, there's no God and the world has no master. I believe with a perfect faith. Is the creator and master of all the, of all that is created. Can you see it? You can't miss it, right? The negative statement for which a person loses share in the world to come. The positive statement that that is a aspect of belief. Number two. Somebody who says that there is a creator of the world, but he's two or more. Right? Two. He's one and single, and there's no singleness like his. Obvious? Parallel. What does it mean to say that God is two? So this is a whole discussion with certain Eastern religions. Christianity has a certain element of, of conceptualizing multiplicity in, in the Godhead. We have to talk about these things. Three. Somebody who says that there is a creator of the world, and he is one, but he has, this is for you, but he has a body or a image, right? Number three. Has no body, and no bodily being can grasp him, and he has no abstract image. Exact parallel, right? Four. Do you see it? Four. Somebody who says he exists, and he's single, and he has no body, but he's not the first cause. He's not first and the first cause. Number four. I believe with a perfect faith that Hashem is first and last. You see it? Number five. And you can keep going through the whole list. Somebody who says, who worships a star or a constellation, right? A mazal is a zodiac. Vizulosai or any other thing. To be an intermediary or a spokesman if you like or some sort of intermediary between him and the Creator, that is the fifth category of atheistic manifestation. What is our fifth one? I believe that Hashem is the only one to be fitting to interact, and there's not fitting to interact with any other intermediary agent. It's absolutely clear, right? For homework, you'll benefit tremendously. Go through this list. I'll leave you with one parting thought that should challenge you all week. And that is that when you've finally gone through all 13 that the Rambam lists here in detail, before we get down to the Lushan Horrors and the, all those things we spoke about, the 13 that are fundamentals of belief, right? Not simply from the Jewish community and, and those, right? But the first that are, as you would say, ideological or, um, what do you say, religious or ideological principle issues, those 13 exactly map to these, except for one major discrepancy. Okay? One major discrepancy, and I hope you put a lot of thought into this during the week, and I'll try next week to go to it. And that discrepancy is as follows. 
when the Rambam lists the uh, 13 articles that are positively required, he lists reward and punishment. I read it to you in the beginning of this discussion that Hashem rewards those who keep His commandments and punishes those who transgress. In this entire list of 13 negative statements, Rambam does nowhere list reward and punishment. That doesn't come up. He splits up the same elements into 13 without needing. In other words, there are two here. There is one that he splits into two. He goes into discussion of the written law and the oral law. He splits them up here and he gets 13 as well. But his counts of 13 here and his counts of 13 here are identical except for one thing. In the statements of positive belief, he states reward and punishments. It's an absolute axiom of Torah. Absolute axiom of Torah. Quite clear about it. Without that, it's not Torah. But when the Rambam says what you lose a share in the world to come for, right? if you deny you're dead spiritually, completely omits reward and punishment. Seemingly suggesting you can deny it and not lose a share in the world to come. But to believe it, you have to believe it. What does this mean? Why did you hear the question? If the one is the source of the other, the one list is the source in the Mishnah of the Rambam's formulation of positive articles of faith, why is it an essential article of faith and why is it not bearing the source dimension itself? How can that be, and what does it mean? We'll leave it with us this evening. Mr. Shema, over the next few weeks, we'll try and delve into these topics.